Before we begin, let me say a word of prayer. Father, we're thankful for this time that you've called your people to come together, to gather as your people, to hear from you. May your word sanctify us. May your word grow us in the grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. May we hear it. May we obey it. And may we pass this truth along to others. We thank you for this time that you've given us to worship you in this way. Uh, Help us to be attentive. Help us to listen well. Help us to, again, seek to live out your word unto your glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Title this message, Authentic Christianity. Authentic Christianity. And so to get the context a little bit, Peter heals a lame man and capitalizes on the opportunity to preach the gospel to the crowd that gathered around him because they thought it was Peter and John that that had the power and authority to do that miracle. They were amazed at what had happened. They were in wonder and awe over the men. And he declares that it was the name of Jesus Christ that healed the lame man and that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, God's servant sent to save his people from their sins whom they killed, but God raised from the dead and has glorified. And Peter and John are then arrested because of the message that they were proclaiming, which gives Peter another opportunity before the Sanhedrin, the highest court, to boldly preach the gospel and the uniqueness and exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ as the only way to be saved, verse 12, chapter 4. Meanwhile, the early church continues to grow and to be strengthened despite the opposition from the outside, verse 4. And Peter and John are then threatened and commanded not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, verse 18. But Peter and John could not comply 
because when God and governing authorities collide or contradict with one another, they must obey God rather than men because their supreme allegiance belongs to him. And so they take a biblical stand in obedience to Christ and respectfully and humbly and willingly accept the consequences, knowing that they themselves will have to give an account as well as the governing authorities for their actions. Verses 19 and 21 in chapter 4 says, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. For when they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people, because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. And verse 23 says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord. They looked to God and prayed because they know that God is the sovereign Lord and master over all things. They must depend upon him as his people. And so opposition comes as a result of faithfully proclaiming the gospel and of faithfully living for Christ in devotion to him. And so as a Christian, a disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, as those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, we will be persecuted. We will be opposed. So how can we have confidence? How can we have boldness to speak the word of God in the face and in the midst of opposition? Last time, a couple weeks ago, we saw from verses 13 to 31 in verse chapter 4, we need to understand who we are. We need to understand our life, who we are in Christ, who our allegiance is to, who we are slaves of, and live according to that by the power given to us, the power of the Holy Spirit. We also need to understand who God is, the sovereignty of God over all things, God as the sovereign Lord and master, and we are to live according to that knowledge and understanding in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's recognizing who we are and what God has called us to and living by the power of the Holy Spirit in obedience to his word and will. And we see that at the end of verse 31, chapter 4, that after praying, they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness, with confidence. And so opposition comes because of our faithfulness to Christ. But opposition also comes because of Satan's purpose to oppose the work of God. Satan's purpose to oppose the work of God. Satan attempts to attack the church in various ways. In chapter 4, by opposition and persecution from the outside. And we saw that. As we'll see from chapter 5, by corruption from the inside. By corruption from the inside. Verse 3 says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And in chapter 6, in a few weeks, we'll see that Satan opposes God by trying to distract the people of God by distraction, by trying to get the apostles to be preoccupied with other tasks and away from their God-given priority and primary calling of devotion to prayer and the ministry of the word. Notice that it's all about the spread of the word or the attempt to stop the spread of the word. And so Satan seeks to hinder the word of truth in any way to draw people away from the truth. John 8.44 says, for he is a liar and the father of lies, referring to Satan. But our greatest weapon, Ephesians 6.17, is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. It is the word of God and prayer that we need. The hope and comfort that we have is that Satan will not prevail because Christ builds his church, Christ strengthens his church, and he purifies his church using the very efforts of Satan himself to accomplish his plan and purpose in his sovereignty. 
We are to be faithful truth-tellers and faithful to live according to the truth and rest in the sovereignty of God. And so in Acts chapter 3 through 5, we learn that this is a chiastic structure. There's parallels that we see. In chapter 3 to chapter 4, verse 22, there's a healing or there's signs and wonders, and then there's a sermon, and then there's opposition. On the other end of that, chapter 5, verse 12 to chapter 5, verse 42, we see the same thing. There's a healing or signs and wonders that take place. There's a sermon, and then there's going to be more opposition. And so the focus, really, the emphasis is, what does the middle portion tell us? Chapter 4, verse 23, to chapter 5, verse 11, which is the section that we're in now. This is the center, and what we see is that God is making it evident that it's through the church that he's now going to do his work, and therefore how believers conduct themselves matters in relation to the spread of the gospel. Being devoted to Jesus Christ. We see believers praying from the passage we looked at last time. Believers are praying, and now we see Ananias and Sapphira not telling the truth. So there's an exhortation to live a life of integrity, to live a life of integrity. So we can be encouraged that through these simple acts of trusting God and obedience to God, praying and living a life of integrity, the gospel does its work. Our testimony stands out and is displayed and is reflected to the world. How is it that the early church and the apostles' ministry is so effective? Their focus was on the name of Jesus Christ. Their focus was on the name of Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 3, verse 6, verse 16, chapter 4, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 17, 18, 29, 30, and throughout chapter 5. That points to the fact that it's not about us. It's not about us, but it's about Him. It's His power, it's His authority, it's His will that is being done, and we are to faithfully and obediently display that through our lives. Luke is encouraging us to live a life of boldness and proclamation of the gospel, of having a consistent witness to Christ, a life of prayer, and a life devoted to Christ. And remember from Luke chapter 1, verse 4, that he's writing to the most excellent Theophilus, so that we may know the exact truth, so that he may know the exact truth about the things that he has been taught. And so Luke wants us to be certain of things that we have been taught, and an incredible that's an incredible blessing, but it comes with a humbling responsibility of whether we will live our lives in a faithful manner so that the gospel will go forth through us. So that the gospel will go forth through us. And so this is the beginning of the church. Luke wants to show us what the church is, thus informing what the church is to do. The church is the institution, instrument of God, and the authority of hope in this world because of Jesus Christ and what he has done and accomplished. He's the reason why there is authority in the church. And so it is his name that we proclaim because it is his name alone that has the power to save. And what characterizes the church is unity. Unity in devotion and purpose, in evangelism, and in a God-honoring life, living a life of integrity. In chapter 4, verse 23, after Peter and John are arrested, it says they went to their own companions, the community of believers and family of God. And they came together to pray, to strengthen one another that they may be bold and confident in speaking the truth of God's word in the midst of opposition. And now we see that they continue to live in harmony with one another and demonstrate their unity through providing for those who had needs because of the fellowship that they share in Jesus Christ. This is what we saw in chapter 2, verse 43 and 45 as well. It says there, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe 
and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so caring for the needs of the church body is an important and necessary part of displaying the love of Christ. Again, caring for the needs of the church body is an important and a necessary part of displaying the love of Christ. But so also is the purity of the body, living a life of integrity, having an authentic witness so that there is no corruption from the inside. That matters to God as well. We will see that with the example of Ananias and Sapphira and God's divine judgment upon them. We're reminded as well of what happened to Ananias and Sapphira in the Old Testament. We think of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective firepans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people I will be honored. False worship. We also see in Second Samuel 6 and First Chronicles 13, uh, as the ark of God was being moved on a cart, Uzzah reached out, touched the ark of God, and God struck him down for his irreverence, and he died on the spot. In First Kings 14, we have the sudden death of Abijah, and so we see that the Lord provides us with examples for us to learn from. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Luke 8.17, For nothing is hidden that will not become evident, nor anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Luke 12, verses 1 and 2, Jesus instructs his disciples, and it says, He began saying to his disciples, First of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered up that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. So in these verses, Luke shows that God is committed to the unity and purity and holiness of his church so that we would live lives that testify of him and puts them on display. Luke shows that God is committed to the unity and purity and holiness of his church that we would live lives that testify of him and puts him on display. So how does God demonstrate his commitment to his church? How does God demonstrate his commitment to his church? And how does the church, his people, demonstrate their commitment to him? What does authentic Christianity look like? First, we'll see in verses 32 to 37, provision and perspective. Provision and perspective. God provides. God provides for all of our needs. He also provides a family for us, a spiritual family for us. And so we are to sacrificially care for and meet the needs of the body as God provides. We are to have this perspective. It doesn't belong to us, but we belong to him and to one another to fulfill his will and not ours. And so we see a brother or sister in need as those who have been given provisions by the Lord. We are to try to meet those needs. So verses 32 to 37. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, 
for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means sons of, son of encouragement, who owned a land of tra- attractive land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 32 says, Those who believed were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. This communicates intimacy and closeness and unity of purpose and mind and devotion to the Lord. Soul carries the idea of emotions and feelings, this passion that they had together to make the Lord known and to care for one another. This is a manifestation and ministry of the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And it happens because of the abundant grace of God upon them all. Verse 33. The preaching, the praying, the fellowship, the sacrificial giving was the power of God at work through them as they gave themselves as obedient slaves of Christ and as servants of one another. This is the love, this is love for God and love for one another, love for neighbor lived out. This is the, the two great commandments, love for God, love for neighbor, love for one another. And this demonstrates that the church is a new humanity. The church is a new humanity, unlike the world, this shows a removal of rich versus poor, not in social standing, but in prejudice. Thus putting the love of Christ on display because we treat others differently than the world treats them. And as these Jews were being saved and as some had to leave everything behind and start over, and because the body had people of various incomes and resources, the family of God as needs would arise, would meet those needs for one another, not expecting anything in return. They were willing and wanting to give up in order to give. They gave voluntarily and selflessly, not because they had to, but because they wanted to, because their focus was not on their own self-interest, but on the interests of others. Philippians 2, 2-5. through 5. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so we see that sacrificially giving to meet the needs of others displays a transformed heart of love and and humility. And John MacArthur has said, quote, Biblical love is not chemistry, it's not impulse, it's not emotion, it's self-sacrifice. And when you love like that, and I love like that, the church will be Christ-like, and the world will know that we belong to God. Verse 33 says, And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which we learn in chapter 4, verse 18, the Sanhedrin commanded them to stop doing that to stop teaching or speaking in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is highlighting that their obedience, their their obedience and devotion to God is first and foremost. In chapter 4, verse 20, they said, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. They know that they are his witnesses. They know and saw that God raised him from the dead. And because Jesus is the risen Lord and he alone can save, they must proclaim that hope. They must proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. But these believers were not just united in mission, but also in ministering to one another, in their mutual care for one another, in being a good steward of what God has provided for them. Verses 34 and 35, For there was not a needy person among them, 
for all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Notice that it doesn't say that those who were owners of land or houses sold everything that they owned. And also notice that it doesn't say that they were commanded to or required to do that. New Testament giving is voluntary. New Testament giving is voluntary. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It's how we, it's a one way that we can worship the Lord is through our sacrificial giving, but it's not commanded, neither is it required. Uh, furthermore, we see that the proceeds would be distributed not equally to everyone, but to each as any had need. And so this is not an argument for Christian socialism. It was to help those who had needs, and that was provided for through the voluntary sacrificial giving of those who had the means to, and understood that now as as a believer, their possessions are not their own, but for them, everything was common. Verse 32. And so this is an evidence of authentic Christianity. Love for God and love for one another. James 2, verses 14 through 17 says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. First John three seventeen. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In verse 36, Luke gives us the example of Barnabas, not only to name him and to introduce him, as he will play a critical part in the life and ministry of Paul, as we'll see later on in Acts, but also to provide a contrast with Ananias and Sapphira in the following verses. And so we're told that his name is Joseph, that he's a Levite, meaning that he's from a member of the priestly tribe. He's of Cyprian birth, which will play a providential role in where he does ministry later on. And that he was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement. He stood out because he was an encourager of the truth with the truth. And he also gave in order that needs would be met as they would be made known. Verse 37, he owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And laying at the apostles' feet was an act of trust and submission as they were to oversee the distribution among the believers in need. And so do we understand and recognize God's provision in our life? Do we understand and recognize God's provision in our life? That everything we have is because of God. And everything that we have is to be stewarded in a way that's faithfully consistent with God's will for us as his people. It's supposed to display God's love for us and our love for one another. And as we do that, his love for us is displayed through our sacrificial giving to the needs of the body. Do we have the right perspective? Do we have the right perspective? Do we see that God is committed to the unity of his church? God is committed to caring for his people through his people by transforming their hearts that they might display his love? Do we see that we are to play a part in that? Do we see that we are to play a part in that? In our testimony to the resurrection of the Lord, Jesus, and in our mutual care for one another, because we are of one heart 
and of one soul with one another. And because of the Spirit's power working in and through our lives, that we may become more Christ-like, more sacrificial, more loving. And so we see provision and perspective. Secondly, we'll see protection and phobos in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. I just needed another P for phobos, but phobos is Greek word for fear, protection and phobos. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The young man got up, covered him up, and and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Immediately she fell at his feet, breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. God purifies. God purifies his church, and so we are to live in the fear of the Lord, knowing that God is holy. In contrast to the positive example of Barnabas, we have the negative example of Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias' name means Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious, and Sapphira, her name means beautiful. And notice the end of verse 37 and what Barnabas did back in chapter 4. It says, Barnabas sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now contrast that with verses 1 and 2 in chapter 5 with what Ananias and Sapphira did. Sold, they sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias had sold a piece of land like Barnabas, and also like Barnabas had pledged the full amount to the community. This can be implied from the use of kept back, which is a rare Greek word that is only used here in verse 2 and verse 3, and in Titus chapter 2 verse 10, and in the Greek version of Joshua chapter 7 with the story of Achan. With the story of Achan who seized plunder from Jericho and tried to hide it. He tried to conceal what he had taken, which was to be devoted or set aside to God. And so Achan received a judgment of death from God himself for trying to hide something from the Lord, from stealing what was not his, but what he pledged to give to the Lord. And here it is used to describe holding back part of the money. The verb means to pilfer, to embezzle, and one does not embezzle one's own funds, but those of another. So in this instance, those that rightfully belong to this congregation, and this was done, it says, with his wife's full knowledge. They knew what they were doing. They planned it. They wanted to gain the approval of man and increase their own reputation before the people. They saw Barnabas being called son of encouragement by the apostles, him being lifted up, and they wanted to be recognized as well. 
This was also the problem that we saw with the Jewish religious leaders. They wanted the approval of man, and when the Christian movement and message was growing and spreading, they wanted to put a stop to it because it was all about their power, their authority, and their own name. This is 1 Timothy 6.5, seeking to use godliness as a means of gain, to appear godly for the purpose of selfish gain. This is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And this is what Jesus warned his disciples about in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your your, your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. Pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Here Luke tells us that Ananias kept back some of the price for himself. And he also states that he only brought a portion of it, which we already know from the first statement, and so this is highlighting what was done. He kept back some of the price that he pledged to give. Ananias and Sapphira were trying to deceive the church and thus trying to deceive God with an insincere offering. The sin was not that they only brought a portion of the proceeds of the property because giving, again, was voluntary and it was their choice. Rather, their sin was that they lied, and in a very public manner. The land and its proceeds were his. Verse 4 says, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? He was not under any obligation to give it to the apostles. His sin was to pretend that he had given everything when when he had only given a portion, thus making himself out to be more generous and self-sacrificing than he really was. And so Peter, with prophetic insight, confronts and admonishes him. Verse 3, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And verse 4, why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And this affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit, because verse 4 indicates that he lied to the Spirit. Verse 5 says that he lied to God. This also shows the influence of Satan. Why has Satan filled your heart? Yet, the responsibility and accountability and the will of man. You have conceived this deed in your heart, and you have lied to God. This was his sin that originated from his own heart of hypocrisy. This affirms Scripture's teaching that blame for sin is not Satan, but self. Blame for sin is not Satan, but self. The lie was a result of the desire to elevate oneself and to receive praise. Perhaps even from verse 7, the fact that Sapphira shows up three hours later, unaware of what has happened to her husband, but well aware of their deceitful plans, perhaps hoping to be greeted with praise for being recognized for their giving. And furthermore, Peter accuses Ananias of lying to the Holy Spirit. And this is a strong Greek expression that carries the idea that he belied or he falsified the Holy Spirit, which is a denial or a disregarding of the Spirit's presence. 
he thought he was going to get away with it. Which is why Peter says in verse 9, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Our integrity before the Lord and his people matters significantly. Verse 4 says that Ananias ultimately lied to God. And we need to understand that how we treat the people of God, how we treat his church, is a reflection of how we treat God. Acts chapter 9 verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul was persecuting the people of God, and there the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? Ananias and Sapphira, thinking that they could deceive the congregation, lied to God. Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Ananias and Sapphira fall into six of those out of seven. They didn't shed innocent blood. And they faced the judgment of God. Peter's role was to confront them, not to judge them. The judgment came from God, verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And from verse 10, referring to Sapphira, immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. In this case, the consequences and the discipline of the Lord was severe because it serves as an example for the New Testament church, just as Achan was an example to Israel in the Old Testament. Luke represents this account as a unique act of divine judgment, manifesting the powerful presence of God at this critical stage in the early life of the church. This demonstrates that God protects his church and God purifies his church. This divine judgment had a purifying effect on those within the church community, and it even had an effect on those outside as well. Verse 5, great fear came over all who heard of it. And verse 11, great fear came over the whole church. And this is the first occurrence of the term ecclesia in Acts, this assembly of believers, this gathering. And it says, and over all who heard of these things. And so we see the purpose of God and the different responses to this act of divine judgment. Verse 13, which we'll look at next time, says, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. None of the rest dared to associate with them because of the Lord's divine judgment, because of their hypocrisy, meaning that no hypocrite or insincere unbeliever dared to join them. But verse 14, we see it says, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. The judgment of God upon Ananias and Sapphira strengthened the church. It purified the church and grew the church. And this emphasizes the truth that a pure church is a growing church. A pure church is a healthy church. And a pure church means that we as believers are living holy lives in the fear of the Lord, taking sin seriously. And this is one of the benefits and blessings of being part of the body of Christ, of committing yourself to the body of Christ and placing yourself under the shepherding care of those in authority over the local body as Christ's under-shepherds because it provides a warning and a protection to maintain the unity and purity of the church, this practice of church discipline. And it can also deter others from going down the wrong path. This is clearly laid out in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, 
the church is delegated by the Lord with authority to do that and to act on his behalf in this way. It says in verse 18, Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And in regards to elders in the context of the local church, First Timothy 5, 19 and 20, it says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. God has put into place the church discipline to protect his people, to purify his church, to strengthen his church. A church that does not practice and exercise necessary and appropriate church discipline is not a biblical, not a loving, and not a pure church. And so we see that as God protects and purifies his church, we are to be active in living in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding, Proverbs 9, verse 10. Authentic Christianity is to live in the fear of the Lord in obedience to him and to live a life of prayer and dependence upon him and to live a life of integrity and devotion to him and therefore to be his witnesses and to testify of him in word, in proclamation, and in deed, how we sacrificially care for one another. This is possible because, again, the power of the Holy Spirit working within us. The Spirit was the power behind the unity of the early church, and its unity was the power behind its witness. The work and ministry of the Holy Spirit grows the church, strengthens the church, purifies the church, and maintains the unity of the church. That is why God hates hypocrisy. God hates lying and deception because it is a threat to the purity and unity and holiness of his church and it will damage the witness of his church. In recent news, the Southern Baptist Convention, with all allegations and the the news coming out of there, this large, large convention of all the abuses, all the sexual immorality, all the sweeping of sin under the rug, all the agenda that they're after, it damages the witness of the church. It causes people to leave the church because they see hypocrisy everywhere. Now, that's not a legitimate reason to not go to church. We understand that we're still sinful. The Lord is still growing us and sanctifying us. But it does damage the witness of the church when we live inconsistently with our what we have been called to do. How we conduct ourselves matters in relation to the spread of the gospel, not only in the face of opposition, but also in the day-to-day, daily display of our love for God and his people, the church. And so this idea of hypocrisy from Ananias and Sapphira, thinking that they could lie to the Lord, thinking that they could get away with it, putting the Spirit of the Lord to the test. Are you coming to church and projecting yourself as godly as a means of gain? Are you coming here with a mask on, thinking that you can hide from the Lord what he already knows. Is church about you or is it about him? Why do you do what you do? Why do you come to church? Are you doing it for yourself or are you doing it for Christ and worship to him? Are you elevating his name or your name? Who is receiving the glory? I've heard stories of people coming to church because they want to find their spouse. 
Is that the main motivation for coming to church? You put on this facade of godliness so that you can pursue that woman or that man rather than coming here to worship the Lord? Or you're only going to go to that church because they have this or go to that church because they have that? Why do you come to church? Is there any hypocrisy that you're trying to hide behind this mask of godliness as a means for your own selfish gain? Joshua 7, verse 19, it says, Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. Do not be a hypocrite. God knows. God knows, and God sees, and his spirit and his presence is here. This is a matter of the heart and the seriousness of sin in the presence of God, as we see with Ananias and Sapphira. Psalm 137, verse 7, David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Verse 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. We must watch over our hearts with all diligence, Proverbs 4, 23, and test ourselves to see if we are in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, not test God. Thinking that we can get away with it or that God doesn't know. James warns us about being double-minded and double-tongued. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the others. You cannot serve God and wealth. It doesn't say that Ananias and Sapphira kept back some of the money because they had a love for money. It just displays that they wanted to be elevated and receive the praise and be shown to have given more than they actually did. But money is definitely a part of that. They kept back some of it for themselves. We must have an undivided and unwavering devotion to the Lord and a, a proper fear of God. First Peter 1.17 says, If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. In 1 Corinthians three twelve through 15 Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This passage is about believers. About believers. 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Praise God for his grace. Looking at the hypocrisy that can come from our hearts, from our lives, from our words, from our mouths, praise God for his grace. Verse 33, abundant grace was upon them all. As God purifies his church, his grace is continually being put on display as great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Authentic Christianity is characterized by a love for God and therefore a love for his people, the church. And authentic Christianity takes sin seriously and so is characterized by a pursuit of holiness. This is how the church will persevere 
and endure through all the opposition and persecution and continue to remain steadfast and faithful in proclaiming the gospel. It is all because of the grace of God and the love of God. God is committed to the unity and purity and holiness of his church. God is jealous for his own glory and he loves his people and he will protect his people at all costs. So may we live lives that testify of him and puts him on display. And how we do that is through our faithful obedience to his word and his will for us. That is how we display the love of God that has been shown to us, this love that we want to be able to express or demonstrate otherwise. And so we are to live a life of integrity, a life of caring for one another, meeting the needs of those within our own body, because God has provided for us in different ways, and God has also provided us with a church body to be able to exercise not only our spiritual gifts, but our physical gifts in ways that will display his love to the world, in a way that will show that we are distinct, we are different, we are not expecting anything back, we're not giving to get, we're giving because we truly want to, out of our transformed hearts, because the church is a new humanity, and as we live in that way, the church displays that we have this hope in Christ, and so we offer this hope of Christ through the message that we proclaim, the gospel, because we show through our lives that we are Transform and that we are being transformed. And so we are able to live this way by the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. And so we must praise God for his grace that is continually working in us. We must have the right perspective about what he has given to us and how it's to be used and administered and distributed. We also need to remember the sovereignty and the holiness of God and how we ought to live in the fear of God, in the love of God, and take sin seriously as his people, knowing that the Lord will purify his church. The Lord will judge his people either immediately or in the future with the loss of rewards for those that are his. We thank you for this time. We thank you that we can look at your word to learn more about how we as a church are called to live, how we are called to faithfully obey you, how we are faithfully to proclaim the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that has the power to save. Help us to be faithful stewards of that which you have given to us. Help us to recognize that it all comes from you. Help us to be quick and willing and wanting to share what we have with those in need around us. Help us also to be quick and willing and wanting to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those around us, for that is the greatest need, that they are reconciled to you and that they are no longer under the just condemnation that they deserve for their sins against your perfect righteousness and holiness. Help us to be those who live lives of prayer and dependence upon you and live lives of integrity and obedience and devotion to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.